The Boldly Now Show, burning desire, big ideas, bold action. So I'd like to uh, welcome Mark Buckley to the show. Mark is a dear friend, a fellow futurist, calls himself a regenerative futurist because he's looking at the land and food and agriculture. He's a big advocate for those areas. He's a, a big ecological economist, understanding how our economics need to go with our environment. Mark is an activist for the climate and environmentalism, and he's one of the first people to be trained by Al Gore as a climate speaker. And he's made a calling through his climate crisis work towards a regenerative and desirable futures. This is his life's work. As you can see, he's a perfect fit for our conversation. Uh, Mark has also been an advocate in the SDGs, a UN advisor, a resilient futurist, a social innovator, climate change activist, uh, seafood, agriculture, food, and beverage network member. Uh, Mark has had a long life as a frontline thinker and a frontline philosopher in many of these areas that our show talks about an awful lot. I am so excited to have this conversation with you, Mark Buckley. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Sean, it's so good to be here. It's good to see you as always. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because in a way this podcast is, uh, you know, like, how do you get a behind the scenes look at what do, what do futurists talk about when futurists talk? Well, funny enough, today is what this show is going to be like. We are going to be having a conversation that maybe we have, I mean, often a couple of times a week, we're on the, on the phone talking about these things or on the, on the Zoom line. And the, the, kinds of conversations that we deal with. And I want people to know that being a futurist doesn't mean that you know what's going to happen in the future. In fact, maybe it makes you the person that is the least certain in a way, and you, but your drive to try to figure out and be curious about a future is what makes things happen. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be talking an awful lot about what we know about what's going on today, what we think may happen in the future, predictable, and what we want to have in the future, desirable as a as a framework for this conversation. Uh, so Mark, first of all, I, I, maybe some of our audience members don't know you. Would you just tell us a little bit about, about your work and your journey, how you came to uh, work on the climate, work in food, and, and really kind of what is your mission today? Uh, gladly. So I, I get asked this question quite a bit and, and some people are really hoping for, you know, was Mark struck by lightning? Is he a climate refugee? Has he seen the environmentalism God and been converted to the, the new the new movement of activism and, and environmentalism? Well, that's not the case. Sorry to disappoint. Um, my story is still great, but it's it's much different. It was a gradual change over time um, where the lights kept getting brighter and brighter and, and this transformation, change of habits where I could no longer see the world differently, where I could not, no longer see the, the path that we were on in that way. And so I um, have studied system science and the systems view of life with uh, Professor Dr. Fritz Hof Capra, and he's a good mentor of mine. And, and uh, pretty much before that and since that time, I just can't look at the world besides as one big system, one big organism. And so, the way I live my life is to really address all the complex facets uh, of a system in order to solve human suffering and global grand challenges. So I write, I speak, I do podcasts. I, I, I'm at the United Nations. I'm a, a social entrepreneur, a, a businessman for good. I, I have businesses and I 
try to address the biggest levers or the biggest drawdown factors to solve human suffering in our global grand challenges. Not only can that be done by uh, a system systems approach or systemic view, but it can really, it's proven to be such a fabulous model, one that really works and is very similar to the, the way the world has always worked. And so I um, am the author uh, of, uh, con contributing author of several books out there. Uh, recently, just in the last uh, seven months, just published two books. One was through Spring Springer called The Global Impact of Social Innovations. Um, another one I launched at Davos with Future IO Institute and PricewaterhouseCoopers called Before This Decade Is Out. Um, and I have a book coming up in the future. It's called, uh, uh, hopefully this year, it's uh, all up to print and publishing, but it's called Menu B, Regenerative Global Food Systems Reformation. And then you kind of mentioned this in, in the, the bio, and so I want to touch upon this as well. You said ecological economist. So I studied with Herman Daly uh, at the University of Maryland, and he was probably the second father of ecological economics. And he was originally with the, the World Bank, and he left the World Bank um, with a pretty open letter and uh, disdain almost for the way things were going with GDP and growth and how economics in our world was really strongly focused on capitalism. And he uh, was truly the father of steady state economics, but then he came out with really this uh, guise under ecological economics and, and spoke about that. He just passed away last year, October 28th. Um, wonder, wonderful man, and I've had him. I used to have a, a show with another friend of mine who's also passed away, Stuart Scott at the climate conferences, the COPs. Uh, we used to do a, a TV program at, in the COPS in the Blue Zone called Climate Matters TV. And we had Herman Daly on and, and uh, got to meet him several times after studying with him and, and kind of try to promote and, and, and do his work. So I do that. And um, I am come from a long line of organic farmers and, and uh, learned permaculture design and uh, uh, from Bill Mollison and Jeff Lawton in Australia and have been doing regenerative farming and regenerative practices, not just in agriculture, but in all forms of my life. And so the last point is when I say I'm a regenerative futurist, um, what most people forget is the future comes before history or comes before the past. And so it's really the only way to, to truly get there is to have a clear understanding of where we're going and what we would like to to end up at in our world. And so those are the ticklings of, of many of the different things I do and come across. And, you know, you, you were on my podcast and we've talked about these at nauseum, but I don't think a lot of people on, on uh, just generally, they see one of my talks or they see me and they say, oh, Mark's a hippie and activist, a tree hugger. He's got a beard and long hair, and, and uh, yeah, I, I think he's a great act activist around the SDGs. Um, that was that's the last thing I would probably touch upon is for the United Nations. I wrote the SDG manifesto for the entire United Nations, and I wrote that in 2015, shortly after the SDGs came out. 
to give people a vision of what it would feel like in a world that has achieved the 17 SDGs, what it would feel like December 2030 to be standing in that world and say, wow, this is what it's like. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what we can work towards. And it's, it's fabulous because there's targets and indicators and goals and monies and, and a pathway of direction of things we can do um, that were concocted through systems dynamic modeling and futurism and backcasting and many of those tools that we talk about as futurists uh, and use hopefully a lot to get there. So those are just a tickling of the crazy many things that I do. Yeah, and I, I want to just pick up a couple of threads here. You know, you've, you've worked with the UN with the SGGs. You've been to the the COP since, I think you said you were saying COP 12. Uh, we're at, what, 29, 28 now? What are we at? Um, Quite some and, time. Yeah, so that's, that's for, you know, many people's entire careers. You've been, you've been participating in those kind of collective systems. Will you do a favor for us? Will you just kind of give us an update? First of all, where are we in regard to, let's just take the climate on right now. You know, one of the areas that are important for us to work on, but, you know, since you've been to COP, you know, where are we at in regards to that? Where are we in regards to the, the, the Paris agreement? Um, and, and what do you see about that process, the COP process? Uh, it's a very controversial process, but I'd love to speak about it. So I, I want to touch on a few things. So I also sit on the Club of Rome Planetary Emergency Partnership. And, and have for at least five, five years or so. And uh, it's interesting, the reason I mention this because not even a week ago, the Club of Rome submitted a letter to uh, Secretary General Antonio Figueres, or Antonio Guterres, not Figueres, Antonio Guterres, Secretary General, submitted a letter to him uh, basically saying, hey, we need to reform the cops. We need to reform the United Nations and the climate conference. It is broken. We are now at going into COP28, and we are still saying a lot of the same. No change, no big actions, um, missing on diplomacy, missing on political will, and we're debating over certain things. So that that is, you know, a, a telltale sign that a, a, a big organization who is actually a, a guiding pillar for the United Nations in many respects uh, when it comes to climate. So the Club of Rome was only not only the instigator of uh, the Climate Bible, the original Climate Bible, the book, The Limits to Growth, which came out in 1972, was published by Dennis Meadows, Donella Meadows, Jörg Rander, Steve Behrens Jr., and it was sponsored by the Volkswagen Foundation, or paid for. It was originally supposed to be a report. Well, that's systems thinking, systems dynamic modeling from MIT, from wonderful uh, mathematicians, scientists, computer analysis, and environmentalists who came up with that. And the UN uses that. We used it in the SDGs. We used it in, in, in a lot of different things for systems dynamic modeling, backcasting to kind of where we need to go to reach certain targets, goals, and things. And so um, when you understand that connection, it's really interesting. So it is a controversial thing. People are starting to make their voices heard. The, the, the other thing is, is COP28, which is coming up in Dubai, I will be there. It's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a good cop, and it's not all bad. 
has a lot of controversy about it. The president of the COP is the president of a gas company in 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 Saudi Arabia and uh, or the United Arab Emirates. I can't remember exactly where. He's an eloquent speaker, very well. He's done tons of movements and positive around um, um, getting us off of fossil fuels and things. But that is kind of a conflict of interest in it. And for those people who, from the outside, who don't know that person and know that, aren't we trying to fight to get off of fossil fuels and those things? Um, look at that. And they're like, what in the hell's going on there? That's That doesn't make sense. Um, the president of a gas company is, uh, you know, the president of the climate conference for the United Nations. Uh, there's a couple things. One. He's not the official president yet because it's still in the hands of COP27 in uh, Egypt. They hold the presidency until this November when they turn over the presidency to um, the new president in Dubai. And then he'll carry it until COP29 with him and his staff. Um, I have high hopes because... That region of the world is the most progressive, the most futuristic, the most how they, they understand food insecurity. They understand how they had to survive on oil and gas for many years to make their their world work. And so um, they can also see that there's a limit to that growth. So I, I'm, I'm hoping it's a positive thing. Um, those are some of the controversies. But rounding back out, the COP27, in my opinion, and I wrote about it in, in uh, both the books, was a complete failure. Uh, we were debating whether we were going to go from 1.5 degrees of warming back up to 2 degrees of warming, where the original uh, target was for COP21, and, and our Paris Agreement was originally set out to be 2 degrees of warming, and then we had a great ambition to say, no, let's Let's be ambitious. Let's make it happen and go to 1.5. And uh, a big chunk of the time uh, at COP27 negotiations were spent specifically around debate and discussion. Should we go back to two degrees? Well, we're, we're mi mixing words and we're wasting time where if we just applied the actions and did the commitments, then we, we could really solve this problem in many respects. So that was that. And then we finally achieved the uh, loss and damage, which is also very controversial. It's a, a few hundred billion uh, dollars um, to those who have experienced loss and damage already that after they have, they, if they're qualifying and meet all the qualifications and then apply, they can maybe get that money. Um, I think it's a band-aid measurement. That's too too little and too late. We need right. prevention. We don't need to wait until people are dead and suffering and in the worst throes to finally apply for money. We need to put that money into place today. Uh, and it's not billions of dollars. I'll tell you right now, to reach the sustainable development goals in the Paris Agreement, we know exactly the dollar figure that we need. And that dollar figure today is 95 trillion US dollars. That's a big number. People don't even, can't even fathom trillion. Um, but it's, it's not that big of a number because that's the low carbon scenario. That's the sustainable development goal way, the Paris Agreement dollar amount, 95 trillion US dollars. That's a little bit more than 6 trillion 
U.S. dollars every year had we have started in 2015 by December 2030. Here's the the big thing to understand, to put that all into perspective. Our world will spend 89 trillion U.S. dollars on development regardless. And this is an old figure. This is an old figure from 2015. They will spend $89 trillion regardless in a high carbon scenario or what I call business as usual, not doing anything sustainable, not not improving development in any way, just doing it how we've always done it. When a building gets old and dilapidated, we just tear it down and build a new high concrete, high cement, high energy uh, building. Or if we have a, a gas guzzling car or a diesel car, when that gets so worn out, we just put it in the junkyard and go buy a brand new one. We don't care if it's recycled or any of those. That's the high carbon scenario. We'll spend that money anyway, $89 trillion by December 2030. We just do it in a much different way. We wait until the last minute and then we spend it when we absolutely have to. Or we look for a bailout from some government or country around the world and say, we've just been through a war, natural catastrophe, everything's been ruined. We need that money and we're just going to be rebuild it the way it was before. There are a couple caveats. There's been two things that have come in since 2015. One is Brexit and the other one is the Ukraine war. And we've probably had some other ones, some natural catastrophes. Um, my, I, I haven't, I haven't looked into what the new numbers have adjusted to for business as usual, high carbon scenario. But I, I would highly suspect that that $89 trillion that we would spend regardless has also gone up because just those two factors and probably many others. So it's not like just that 15 to $16 trillion more to do it at low carbon scenario, the sustainable development go away and the Paris Agreement has a much better outcome. So uh, just to put that into perspective, and last, I, I, because your question is really how do we feel about the cops and and the UN and the climate processes. Um, It needs reform and the UN is going through reform. Antonio Guterres has said this from the moment he came into his position, that the UN uh, is uh, really in need of a reform. Everybody, all the hundreds of agencies in the UN umbrella need to get on the same page to achieve this goal. Having said that, we need to put it into clear perspective um, and make sense of that. The United Nations is only a platform, and especially the climate conferences, is only a platform like a a big event to bring everybody at the same table, and it's really up to those member states to negotiate and agree together, to come together to make that change. The UN just provides some frameworks and some guidance and direction, but they can't force the member states. It's really up to member states. So, for example, the Club of Rome, that letter from the Club of Rome, if we had that letter come in from from uh, the Club of Rome, uh, Secretary Antonio, uh, General Antonio Guterres, really couldn't do much. He would have to then give it to the body of the General Assembly and have all the member states vote upon it and, and say, okay, you know, um, can you accept it? And if they do, then we can do that reform. It's a it's a really weird process. And one last thing, and then I've harped on it uh, quite enough, is 
out of each climate conference, there's negotiators, and those negotiators decide what they're going to negotiate on um, at a pre-COP and, and other things where they work on the terminology, the paper, what they're going to discuss at the COP. And then it's probably less than 2,000 people. It's probably less than um, 1,500, 1,600 people that are actually doing the negotiations while at the COP. This last COP at COP27, there was 44,000 people in attendance, and less than 1% of those were actual negotiators who were negotiating that. The rest of it is kind of like a, a political burning man where there are 200 pavilions, country pavilions and delegations uh, in the blue zone that for two weeks, eight to 12 hours a day, um, talk about what they're doing towards sustainability and the environment. Talk about what achievements they've made, and they have talks and, and things with other delegates. Um, so just imagine an event on hyper steroids or hyper um, uh, um, medication, their speed, that for two weeks, every single day, eight to 12 hours a day, you have 200 speaking platforms and pavilions all offering something at the exact same time. Okay. I'm only one person. There's, you know, that's impossible almost to, to do that. So it, it's really hard and it, it needs, it needs reform. It needs everybody to get on the same page and we need to start making some achievements. So hopefully, uh, you know, it didn't, didn't good. To, I could talk hours about that because there's a lot more factors, I, but yeah. I want to know a little bit more about the Club of Rome letter. I read it, but I want you to share it with, with our audience. You know, like, what are they suggesting? Why did they write the UN? And Club of Rome, if everybody remembers, is really this kind of foundational environmental or climate watch group um, really set the tone for how we might look at a global climate system or why we might look at it. Still a very influential body and some of the members are some of the most influential people in this world. But tell me a little bit, what, what are they telling the UN and why is that important? Well, really, they, they just want to let them know that it, it just can't go on. They're trying to point a finger at things that sh actually should be obvious. Um, that we're now at the coming, going into the 28th time we've had a climate conference, uh, the 28th time that we've had a pre-climate conference, and we're basically hashing out the same thing. Sustainable development has been around for over 50 years. It was started in Stockholm, Sweden, at the um, um, Stockholm plus 50 in 1972 as well, same time as the Club of Rome, um, a book came out, The Limits to Growth. And in that was the talk of sustainable development, environmentalism, sustainability. And we're still talking about it today. And we need some huge actions because people are dying and suffering. And so they basically came back out and pointed in uh, to the re response, not only we've been doing this a long time, but we're not seeing any headway. We're repeating the same things. We're repeating things that were discussed in Rio. We're repeating uh, things that were uh, discussed in the Montreal Protocol. We're repeating things that were discussed in the Copenhagen Protocol. And, and uh, we're just continuing to talk about it and not a lot of action is happening. And then when uh, this is interesting, when um, 
a new Bolsonaro in, in Brazil or a new Trump comes into office or somebody who's against climate and, and does that, it derails the whole process. When, when Trump came into office and uh, uh, that was COP2022 20, um, in Marrakesh, on the second day of the COP, it's a two-week conference, on the second day, we could have just closed the doors and went home. People were bawling because they're like, oh, Trump's going to take us out of the Paris Agreement. They're crying everything because of one president that that really did that. We saw the same thing in, at COP25. It was originally supposed to be in Rio and, and Brazil. And then uh, because of Bolsonaro, he said no. So then it was moved to to uh, Chile, um, Santiago, Chile. Chile had an uproar of political unrest and things. And so then it was moved to Madrid. Um, we cannot let delegations, political will, politics, influence where we're going in our world in the future. It just cannot be so. That is a bad thing. And the Club of Rome is really calling it out. We need to fix the system or we need to abandon the entire system and start with something new, or we need to create a new system that makes the old one obsolete. And so they tie to that in the letter. And it's it's not a very long letter, but it's very succinct on what their suggestions are and how they can support and, and that. And the crazy thing is, there's uh, uh, not only the people who wrote the letter and also on the Club of Rome, I'm also one of the signers on it. There's a list of those. Uh, Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General at the signing of the Paris Agreement and the SDGs, he signed the letter, as well as many, many other great and intelligent people and who knows we cannot keep going like this. We have to do something else. We have to fix it because it's not, it's not, yes, there's the, 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 um, the doomsday clock and the clock's kicking and we're uh, ticking and we're in a rush and in, in a hurry to, to fix these things. But, but, but there, there is no time. Uh, we don't have time to, to continue the debate. We need to really align and start to have some firm actions to, to move forward because there is a point of no return. And that's one of the signers of the document as well is uh, Professor Dr. Johan Rockström. And he's the creator of the nine planetary boundaries uh, along with many other scientists. And I had the fortunate uh, opportunity to interview him at COP27 and post it on TikTok in our, our, our discussion. He said, there's not a lot to be hopeful or optimistic of. I went through the COP and said, hey, uh, I'm going to do a twist on a cup half full, and I'm going to call it a, a cop half full. And can you please give me your optimistic perspective? When I asked Johan Rockström that, he said, there's not a lot of hope and optimism. We've been wasting our time. We're debating over certain things. We're hitting tipping points. Um, there's, there's not a lot of hope and optimism. We need to act, and we need to act like our world is on fire. You know, it's funny. People want to laugh at Greta Thunberg. But, we're, you know, we're in a home that is burning or suffering, and we're just, it's not a big deal. We're not in a rush, and we should be in a rush because um, it's important. Well, it's interesting what you mentioned. So if you think about it, the U.N. is a collection of governments. It's a political um, organization, it, it, and each of those individual governments have their own home politics. Um, I know that that 
in even the countries that have been more successful in making changes, I live here in the Netherlands, there's still a lot of debate. You know, they're trying to reduce nitrogen, but the farmers don't want to raise less pigs. Well, they'd raise 11 million pigs a year in, in, in the Netherlands. There's only 16 million people in the Netherlands, 16, 17 million. So it's a lot of pigs if you think about it, you know, kind of how many pigs are being raised here. But the farmers are traditional people. They farm, they want to have the right to farm. You, you kind of get, if you look at any one of these issues, you can kind of drill down to there's a political conversation at the bottom of it. The problem is, is that that the politics are not going to solve the problem. And like you say, if it's a house on fire issue, and which, you know, like we're, we're seeing so many um, climate disruptions, obviously uh, uh, the migration that comes along with it. The, the, the question is, is will anybody take responsibilities? Well, governments are actually not built to take responsibility. They're, they're built to build consensus if they'd work really, really well. But they're not, you know, like if Churchill had said, what do you guys think? Should we, should we fight off the Germans? What, like, let's have a debate. Maybe we could go have a, 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 a you know, a, a save England from the Germans conference. How about everybody? We'll get some, we'll get some pavilions. That's what we'll do. We'll get some pavilions. How about we have some really great videos talking about how great England is and you should fight for it. And, and maybe we should make some videos about, wow, if the, if the Germans come and conquer us, it'd be really bad. I mean, Britain would have been conquered in three months if that had been the case. No, they mobilized. They mobilized and they, and they took action to fight that. And so, you know, and, and I don't want to use war methodology to really talk about climate change. But I just want to point out that that when we're in a, a great time of crisis, then we need leadership that is not our traditional consensus-based leadership, especially if it's politicized consensus-based. And I think that's what most countries have is politics. So the UN is just a, a macrocosm of that. It's a collection of a bunch of people that can't get can't decide what to do. And my takeaway from the Global Rome uh, letter was it's time to take action. Uh, it, I don't give a shit if it's five, 1.5 or two, 2 degrees. We actually have to take action or it'll be four. Absolutely. You know, if, we, if, we, if we debate that, then we'll be dating, debating something else later on, which which kind of leads me to a, a, two, two things I want to talk about now. And we'll talk about them in quick succession because I think they actually tie together. Um, well, first is what do we do other than a political process? How else could we we take action and make changes? But the second thing is, I just read an article. I think I forwarded it to you a couple of days ago from a, a kind of a radical economist that I that I follow, and and his proposition was that that basically we've come to the end of of supply economics. We've actually outstripped supply, and the way his his evidence for that is that we're we're you know raising interest rates across the world, but uh, in, but inflation's not coming down. That's because the cost of the supplies is getting so high that, that, that competition is driving up the cost of those resources. It, and that only happens when you get to, to radical scarcity and, and basically saying that, well, our global economics is completely uh, it's, it's completely screwed in one way or another. That's a technical term, by the way. And I don't think an economics, economist knows how screwed we could actually be. Um, but when the, the levers of traditional economics are no longer working, when these central banks are raising uh, interest rates and it's actually not bringing um, the inflation down, we can see that, it, it, and I'm, I'm trying to so politics, like we've got this politics that's not really working to save us from the climate. And then we have this economic system as well. I think a lot of climate people used to say, hey, look, if we can incentivize the right behavior, we can do impact investing, that we can kind of work our way out to that. But well, what happens when businesses can no longer borrow money? What happens when company, countries can no longer afford to repave the roads or rebuild infrastructure of their systems because the, 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 
the price of those things is too high. Well, you, you want to know what it looks like? You just go to Venezuela or Argentina and see what happens when the supply of these things cost too much for, for a country to, to be able to afford. And it, it just points out that, you know, in many ways, this global capitalistic democratic um, system that we've built was actually really, really great for growth. You know, and you said is by, by the 1970s, we're already talking about the end of growth. We've got to find the end of growth. You know, we're, we're 50 years ago. We, we saw that on the horizon. Well, I think what's what's becoming clear in both of these conversations, the economics issues, which I'd love for you to, to comment on a bit, and the political is, issues is that we actually don't have the tools to make the changes that we need. We don't have the tools on the table. And I'm, I'm happy to, to keep going to COP and supporting it, but it's probably not the tool that's going to solve these problems. So tell us, first of all, like, what do you think about this conversation around the economics that, that maybe we're starting to see fractures in, in the global economic system? Absolutely. So we're absolutely seeing the, the fractures because just in the last two years, there's been more than 20 ecological economic books that have been written. Matter of fact, the Club of Rome just wrote one. It's called Earth for All. I got it right here. You know, Earth for All was uh, all the greats that I mentioned that are signing that letter. They were there as well. So they're they're thinking of what are new models. And that's this one is more a mix of a donut economics and, and planetary boundaries kind of combined into thing. Kate Rollworth, Johan Rockstrom, and Sandrine Dixon, many other greats, and York Barons, who was the original of the Club of Rome Limits to Growth book who did the World Model 3, he's actually come back in into this book and this new, how can we infuse that, that world model thinking using systems dynamic model to create a model of what would a new, new economic system look like? So 20 books and people talking about it, many more talking about it and out there. So um, books don't get written, reports don't get written unless people are like, we're sick of the system, we want something new. Um, because economics is boring as hell, so why would you want to write a book about it unless you want, it, want the system change? And then there's been probably more than 30 books just on, on economics, period, capitalism, uh, and, and on and on, um, different types of extractive or very bad economic models, just kind of either in historical view or maybe they've come up with an even worse economic model than in the past. So there's a lot of movement and discussion in there. Um, what, what most people don't understand, and I, lo I love that we're talking about this because it really affects every human being. It shouldn't be left up to politicians, shouldn't be left up to delegations. It shouldn't be talked about at the World Economic Forum or the United Nations just by a select few. Everyone, you and I, my kids, my relatives, uh, people around us, everybody is affected by the economic models that they're living in their daily life. And some people are living a couple models uh, uh, in, their, in their daily life, and some people are affected by certain models uh, over times and periods of their life. But if you said, explain capitalism to me, explain extractive economics to me, explain neoclassical neo or um, uh, micro macroeconomics to me, most people would really struggle, but they're within that system every single day. Their happiness, their future, their life, what they do every single day 
uh, who they're working for, what they're working for to provide for a home, uh, family, whatever, is tied to some form of economic model. And through the years, I've lived through five economic bubbles where uh, it's a financial uh, a tech bubble, a real estate bubble, um, even where, where you're at in, in the Netherlands, there's a, a, a tulip bubble, an economic bubble around tulips because that's a big thing in the Netherlands. Um, and what happens when those bubbles get so big, they either burst or there's some kind of a bailout from the government, and then we go right back to that broken, fucked up model again. So we say, oh, here comes a bubble. Oh, no, real estate bubble, tech bubble, financial bubble. It's getting really bad, and it gets bad, and it bursts or it doesn't burst, and then we get a government bailout, but we don't change the model. We go right back to the same system that never worked for us. Um, so... That's part of the problem. We're repeating history. The definition of insanity is hoping for different results, but you're repeating the exact same thing over and over. Um, the, the important question of this is really what I wanted to touch upon is that most people don't know that it's not only those shitty economic models, GDP, capitalism, um, classical, neoclassical, uh, extractive economics, but there's more than 32 ecological economic models in our world today. And I ask a lot of people, say, hey, can you name four ecological economic models for me? Same thing. It's not even the bad, the, the bad economic models. They can't name those, but they can't name those. And, and I say, I know for a fact you've heard about it. And I, I, talk, I, I normally talk to people within the United Nations or people who are, are environmentalists or also entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs. Um, so I know for a fact that they've heard about them. They said, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. What, what do you mean by that? And I says, well, how about donut economics? How about mission economics? How about circular economy? How about platform economics? How about shared economics? How about well-being economics? And I could go on because there's more than 32. And like I said, just in the last two years, there's been more than 20 books come out about it, and there's more coming up uh, all over. There was one that was started in Germany. Uh, um, it was called the Gemeinwohl economy, which is the well-being economy. Um, and, and uh, you know, there, these little movements and pockets, the donut economics from Kate Rowworth is really interesting because it's being applied in, in Amsterdam. It's been trialed and piloted in certain places to go about. Um, so there's a lot out there. They're very uh, hopeful. Um, it's how do we make them work and stop piloting and stop trying them? How do we execute and, and put them into practice so that we can then um, really show everybody that, that that new model is a much better way, not only for human suffering, but for our global grand challenges and, and um economic well-being for all, for all humanity, um, not just certain countries or certain places. Because once that occurs, then that's when everybody kind of makes that switch. Um, one last thing that I really need to discuss, there's two major books that, that are out there that kind of discuss um, the scenarios, the pilots, the trials, where they've tried out different things uh, under the sustainability guys, under ecological economics, 
One is the Stern Review or the Stern Report. It's a biblical huge book um, of thousands of scenarios similar to the Club of Rome book where they've done different scenarios. What is the benefit of moving towards renewable energy, sustainable practices, uh, social businesses, uh, B Corps, uh, things that are better for human health, well-being, and our planet and environment? And all of them show there is no reason not to make that switch. There is not a benefit. There's nobody during the last three years plus years of pandemic, economic downturn, Brexit, Ukraine war that was on a sustainable model and following the sustainable development goals, the ESGs, corporate social responsibility, being a progressive organization doing something good for humans and on our planet that went bankrupt uh, or, or went under during this time. All of those ended up thriving, surviving because it's a better model. On the other hand, those who did not switch to that model, those who are still in this stuck in this old model, a lot of bailouts, a lot of layoffs, a lot of unhappy people, tons of movement in there. And um, it's not only in, in the book, the Stern Review, it's in a book from Jeffrey West Scale, talks, talks about it as well. Um, and then there's hard facts data because everybody wants to say, oh, is it really better benefit if I go just do the sustainable model and, and is it really pay off? And, and so the proof's in the pudding. And the last proof is during that economic downturn, these last three, three and a half years, um, on the Morningstar review at the beginning of the pandemic, 25 out of 28 sustainable index funds outperform their conventional counterparts. Today, on the Morningstar Review, 28 out of 28 outperform their conventional counterparts. The Nikkei, New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, the S&P Global, all sustainable index funds, organizations and corporations uh, have outperformed with the sustainable model and they're able in times of hard, hard times, they're able to have resilience, pivot on a dime, deliver essential services, keep their doors open, give back to humanity, give back to our environment. And, and they come out you know, through these times and turbulations, not only happy, healthy, but as somebody who is a good steward over our planet, leaving our planet net positive, better than we found it. And it's just a better business model. It's a better life model. It's a, a better a better way to structure and organize ourselves. I think uh, one of the things that that you just said in the, in the schism, the the gap, like where we're right up to the precipice of this, this thing here, is that we know we need to make changes. We've got some some great economic models. We've got some uh, you know really just great science about how to to do circularity and things like that. We know that um, that new development of business, uh, of buildings and whatnot is probably not a good idea. We need to redevelop, we need to recycle, we need to do all these things. We've gotten really good at knowing what to do. We're really needing some guidance on like how and when and where. And 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 I think in a way what's wanting in, in, for, in kind of my world is like, I really want some people to stand up and say, hey, look, let's do this. Let's go this way. And I know you and I have started this conversation. I'd just like to, to share it with the world. And like, how do we bring, start to bring some people together to do that outside of, not in the UN, 
not in any kind of political organization, not beholden to any political organization. For that matter, maybe part of some kind of sustainable business or good business, but actually not beholden to those businesses as well. You know, if you bring anybody, group of people together, they have other responsibilities. That's something they're going to have to pay attention to and, and by nature want to, want to benefit in some way. So how do you get people that are actually could be neutral enough to help us to begin to, to see a way out of this? I mean, uh, you know, like, so, so premiere this thought, this idea that we've been having, Mark, for the world. I, I, I'm, I'm excited to, to start sharing this idea. Great. I, I am too. So, um, Really, there is no way that that it can't lead to that eventually. And I'm so surprised that it hasn't emerged sooner um, throughout history. And, and I think we could probably go back and research this and, and, and find out. I, I believe there's been small pockets of, of humanity before that have tried to come together to, to find some kind of uh, global solutions for for that, and it could be that the the idea um, that the United Nations wasn't really started for that it had some fabulous thought leaders and people initially, but it was really set up to stimulate economic growth and form of globalization, and it, it accomplished that job. But it it was time to stop a few decades ago on that achieved mission and pivot to uh, a, a new global mission of actually uh, protecting the earth and, and kind of giving back, being good stewards of the planet. The the thing is, is there's this question, and it's been around for at least 70 years, and we've talked about it. Um, one of the polymaths and great architects we talk about a lot is our Buckminster Fuller of the Buckminster Fuller Institute. He, he was a super guy, but he wrote this book, called the Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth. And yeah, obviously I have all these books at, at, at my arm's reach because uh, it's important, but he wrote his why or his purpose for existing in the front of this book. And he actually spoke his why um, out many times. Uh, he created the geodesic dome at the World's Fair in Montreal in 1967 and conducted what we call the, the New World Game or the World Game or the Peace Game at this World's Fair in Montreal. But his why was this basically a question, what does a world that works for everyone look like? And he, right in the beginning of this book, gave us his why and his purpose for existing, plus answered this question. And, it, and it's basically to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without the ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. So now we come back to, to, to your question and why that's so important. Why don't we have, since this is over 70 years, a fellowship, a, a, a group of humanity who's realized we're all crew members of the spaceship Earth. How do we be good stewardships and how do we create a world that works for everyone? How do we bring that together and how do we solve for that? And, and um, so what we've kind of come up with and birthed to the world among with many other fabulous greats is this world that works fellowship. 
and it's a, a much different model and thought idea. It's, it's a, like an immersion gathering. It's very hands-on. It's not a lot of debate. It's, uh, it's leading experts, thought leaders, philosophers, scientists, um, polymaths, futurists, who are leading the future. People like Kate Roworth, Donut Economics, Johan Rockström on Planetary Boundaries, the Dalai Lama on, on cultural and social and religious uh, areas. Um, people who really say there's got to be a better way to live as human beings. There's got to be a, a, a different model and, and thing out there. The issue is all of them are experts in their own right and usually only in one silo or facet. Of a, of a complete system that would work for everyone, uh, a world that works for everyone. So how about bringing them all together in, in a fellowship to present that model to the world and how we can solve um, a lot of our problems and have it be independent. The thought process behind this, and I don't want to give you too, too much and take up all the time of the podcast, but the thought process is, is it's not a stage like the UN or, uh, or other World Economic Forum where people can come and pound their chest and say how great they are and they came up with a, the mission economics or donut economics or planetary boundaries and this is the, the silver bullet. Um, it, it, it's a place to come and say, if you haven't heard about planetary boundaries, if you haven't heard of mission economics, if you haven't heard of uh, this culture or this philosophy or this compassion or Taoism or Buddhism or some, some of these teachings, then you need to get yourself a little education and understand what those mean. And then now we come to the stage um, where everybody knows what the other's offering and our mission, our job is to bring all those together so that all the Buddhists, all the donut economic people, all the planetary boundary people say they hurt us. They're not leaving our portion of this expertise out of the picture. They found a way to marry all these things into one way that the world really works without ecological offense to anybody, without in, in the shortest possible time, spontaneous cooperation um, to do that. Uh, and, and I don't even want to call it a game. Let's just make it into a real practical thing. So let's put those in, into practice. Um, life is life, and, and we're, we're not in a pilot project anymore. I'm, I'm sorry. We're not doing trials or pilots. Um, uh, we can't take back all the, the damage and, and things we've done in the past. We need to start acting. We need to act as good stewards and start implementing some of these new ideas. Um, I, I would hate to be, um, and I, I think we are in, in some respects, we're still stuck in the Stone Age. We didn't leave the Stone Age because we ran out of stones. There's plenty of stones. We, ran, we left the Stone Age because there's better ways for humanity and, and our uh, global grand challenges to do things. And so we should build a new model through a fellowship, a, a world that works fellowship, and um, make it so darn good that's so all-encompassing that it really covers 100% of the, 
of humanity, 100% of everyone on our world, a world that works for everyone, so that it makes all those shitty old models, the ones that are broken, that we keep talking about wasting our time on, obsolete. And you say, why didn't we do this a, a long time ago? This is fabulous. Instead of wasting our time in, in the amygdala of our brain with the doom and gloom, debating this, that, splitting hairs, let's go in, in a total different way. Yeah, I like I like what you're saying. And I, when, what we mean by model, by the way, isn't in a, isn't a set of instructions. It's not. Yeah. It's not an, an operating system. It's much more like a model. Like, oh, you got these. You got this thing about Holland and pig farmers and needing to reduce nitrogen. You know, how do, here's a model for bringing all those parties to the table and making sensible conversation, sensible discussions, sensible ideas. Because look, right now in the old system, if I'm a pig farmer and you're telling me don't grow pigs, how am I going to feed my family? Or how, or maybe even, maybe it's even just like, how am I going to enjoy life? How am I going to, that's my own, my only skill is raising pigs. Now you're telling me not to raise pigs. Well, that's because we have a, a global competitive system. And if I can't, can't do my thing to get my value, to get my piece of the pie, I lose out. And yes, that's never a good model. Right now, our model of change is somebody gets what they want and somebody gets screwed. That's a zero sum game. We have to have models where we can, okay, let's get the pig farmers and the need for nitrogen. And together, we're going to solve for that as well as solving for their economic livelihood and how they continue to give value. And maybe they start growing instead of an, on a farm growing, you know, hundred thousand pigs a year. Maybe they have a farm where it grows five pigs a year, but they're the most amazing pigs ever. They get brushed and groomed every day. Their toenails get painted, whatever, so that the people who make a livelihood from that still make a livelihood for that. Or maybe the system generates a different kind of livelihood. Wouldn't that be amazing, Mark, where what you did in your life didn't mean whether you could live inside with plumbing or outside in the street? Well, no, we should all be living inside. I think Bucky really said that, you know, like we, we already have enough resources to take care of everybody. Absolutely. That kind and, of thing, those kinds of moves. And I want to also say action, right? Yeah. Because if we don't solve this problem with the pig farmers here in Holland, then what means is for Holland, because they have hard caps and nitrogen, means that they're not going to build any new buildings. They're not going to have any other innovation in other areas because they're going to have to keep growing pigs that get exported, by the way. All that, all those, all those pigs are getting exported out of Holland. I'm not saying the farmers are wrong. But I'm saying the whole approach is wrong. And I think this kind of fellowship, I think we need to start coming together and say, well, what's another approach? How can we get to the table? Maybe part of this fellowship is to actually train people to come and facilitate conversations in these new model economics, these new model of, of, of um, resource management, et cetera, et cetera. And just, just start doing it because, look, we, we can't wait for the UN to tell us what to do. We can't even get our governments to do it because, in general, they're 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 hamstrung by the political arguments. We've got to get in there and actually just start making the changes, which requires another thing, which is important: is this wholesale adoption of new approaches, a grassroots wholesale adoption of, you know, like um, we're all sitting around the boat and it's leaking and it's slowly going down. And three people at the front think the best way to get the water out is to tip the boat over. And three people in the back think the best way to get the water is to start bailing. And they start arguing and the middle people start drowning. And that's what we're in. Instead, it's like, okay, you guys tip the boat, we'll start bailing and we'll see what we'll see what works for us. Uh, you know, then sooner or later, maybe everybody's bailing or everybody's tipping the boat or whatever the take that the take home is, but we are paralyzed by our systems now. They're not only not serving us, they're keeping us from taking even sensible action. I mean, even just common sense actions to take 
take um, take care of ourselves and, and protect the planet for ourselves from other people. So I, I mean, as you can see, I'm getting all it's, fired up. It's, about very, this. <laughs> it's very complex. And so I'm, I understand why you get all fired up because there's a couple of things. One, we, we uh, define ourselves by what we do, what we've built up, the way we live our lives, whether it's a pig farmer, whether it's a, a climate speaker, whether it's an economist, whether it's a banker, it doesn't matter. Uh, a lot of us define ourselves by our job titles and what we've done. That's a means to sustain ourselves, to support ourselves. And so that that's a very emotional and a very important thing is, is what's being replaced? Is it being replaced? And how, how does it look like? So that that's a legitimate concern. But when when it, it, this isn't just a joke or laughable, it's not something to be to, to to be really even debated about. When we talk about a world that works for everyone, it works for the pig farmer, the coal miner, the gas and oil producer. It works for everyone. That no one loses their livelihood. The livelihood and rights to basic resources should be an inalienable human right, and that's what. We're talking about in some of these systems. It's not about, it's absolutely not about reductionism. Not only not mechanizing human beings and breaking us down to a mechanistic parts or reducing us to certain parts and the way we play. It's not about that we have to do less or eat less or can have less so that the rest of the world can have more. It's not about that. It's about equality for everyone that everybody has those inalienable human rights, the basic needs that they don't need to worry about food, shelter, their housing or that. Now, uh, if it's ex exorbitant amount of, of, of money and waste or say that we have more than others, that's a whole different thing, but well worth the, 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 right human needs and, and rights to live at a, a comfortable standard. And there is a standard set like that. It's called the, uh, uh, the global hectare. So we've been over, over uh, 70 years now, we've been measuring earth overshoot day. And it's based upon the global hectare, how many resources we use and per person, it's 1.6 global hectares per person, which is replicable. That means that if you were to have that, you could have food, security, shelter, water, enough to live a ripe old age. If you're not a good steward over that, then, then you don't have that. And, and, and it's not nobody in, in a global replicable hectare gets a desert or something that's not replicable. We're only talking about the space on Earth that is replicable, that they could have that should be an inalienable right. We've been using that as, as a bad accounting principle, only thinking about how much bad we're doing. We're not thinking about how good of stewardship we're, we're over that so that we can actually increase that and maybe um, uh, out of that 1.6 global hectares, live so efficiently and do it so renewably and so smart that we've just increased our own global hectare to maybe two or three or four global hectares because we're doing it so efficient and that in, in turn increases it for everyone else. It not only makes you rich, 
but it makes the rest of the world rich and happy. And, and, and we, we still have problems as humanity, but the problems are much higher. So I, I think the core is, you know, not only talking about those individual who, who are concerned about, uh, losing something that they build up or their sense of, of, of identity for what they've done, but it goes to, to a much deeper principle. And I think humanity, and I call it the human condition. Hannah Arndt uh, talked about the human condition in her book, The Human Condition and the Eichmann Trials and, and many other things a, a lot. But I believe there's, uh, it, it's really something that can be understood a lot differently, and it goes back even further to, to the time of Darwin. One is that neo-Darwinism or neoliberalism doesn't exist. It's, uh, um, it's all bullshit. It's never existed, but somehow we've gotten into this, this mode and, and misunderstood or put a twist on what Darwin meant with natural selection, survival of the fittest, only the strong survive, severe competition that we're always us against someone else, that it's them or us or it's the others, you know. Um, that's not the case. Um, Lynn Margulis, the greatest scientist our world's ever seen, turned the entire scientific community on her head. She, she was the um, first wife of Carl Sagan, who was also a, a great mentor and, and a super person who spoke about this often. But... She said the world works in symbiosis, that it works in cooperation and collaboration, and that's the way that the world works. It's not that natural selection, survival of the fittest, only the strong survive severe competition, that that's not how the world exists. That's how the world dies, and that's how civilizations collapse. That's how well, things fail by that competition and that stealing of resources it's where we're all at the table on the same planet of the 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 earth buffet and we're worried that that someone else that we're not going to get enough so we know we can't eat everything on our plate but we pile up our plate so much and so big that we don't eat it we waste that and which leaves less for someone else there's enough, more than enough, abundant for everybody to go through that buffet and to let the earth regenerate itself and to live off of this principle of symbiosis. That's truly how the world works. And I think that's a, that's a big, huge factor that, that we really need to discuss when we move forward with some of these models because we tend to, and, and, and this is the last point I want to say about that, um, Michael, Sean, is, is really important. We set a why or, or an intention that, that uh, what does a world that works for everyone look like? And we set that why and that vision, and it's pretty beautiful. But before everybody adopts and can see that vision and understand it's beautiful and it's great, we get hung up before that, that has occurred on the how. We say, well, what about the pig farmers? What about the coal miners? What about the electric vehicles and, and, and how can that be possible? And we get so caught up on the how and, and, and can't even see the vision that we lose sight on, on agreeing first on the why. Because whenever humanity has agreed upon the why or on that future, 
we've always been able to reach it. The moment we don't and we start talking too much about the how, how am I going to still make money? How am I going to still provide my family? How am I going to still raise pigs? How all this? And we lose that that vision, and it also keeps us held back into the Stone Ages. It, it's a policy. It's a regulation. It's a mindset that doesn't let us evolve and keep pace symbiotically with the way our, our world is moving naturally without any, us doing anything. Our world is evolving and moving and, and things are regenerating every single day at a pretty exponential pace. And humanity is still stuck in outdated technologies, outdated ways of living, outdated ways of thinking, divided and bordered to, in this old way because they're, they're trying to hold up to the last stone till we use the last stone, the last drop of fossil fuels, the last whatever to, to move forward. And it's very stifling because that's, that's a surefire way for collapse. And you said symbiosis is an interesting thing. And we talk about environments, you always look at, well, what are the inputs of and outputs of each uh, member of the environment of an ecosystem? You know, like this thing, the waste of this thing becomes the food of this thing. And the food of that thing becomes a thing that makes a soil that the plant can grow. And then the, the fungi take the, 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 this information and do this to it and change the soil. So the things grow, there's all these um, uh, things that happen inside those, those ecosystems that we couldn't design. First of all, we couldn't, you couldn't say, well, how do, let's design uh, an ecosystem around a bee. You know, like you would, you could, you never do that. That the earth provides that that's something that over millions of years came to be. But in, in, in that system, there is a, you said like a, 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 a mission or a purpose or a why for that system. And, and that, that certainly, if you look at uh, an environment, it's definitely for the thriving of all. It's not like you, when did you ever go into the forest and, there was one tree or there was just bees or just deer. Like, no, it, it actually requires all of it together. And they're unique. I mean, some forests don't have deer. Some do. The bees uh, tend to go to, to you know different places than, than the hummingbirds, which are other kinds of pollinators. And I, I think what you're saying when you say stay in the, in the why and not the how is a little bit like that because um, – the, the why has us be in, in kind of sympathetic resonance with each other. If I go to that buffet, and my worry is that not everybody's going to get a share. If that's really my why for being at that buffet, and I look at my plate and I look at the, what's on offer, I might say, you know what? I want X, but 50% of X is what I need. And then I go in there and maybe I take 50 or maybe even I take 40% because just a little bit of me is just a little bit worried. And maybe somebody else has to come along and say, no, Michael, Sean, you, you need about this much. I'm going to put a little bit more in your plate. No, no, I'm going to put a little more in your plate. What if, what if that was our economic system? Human beings actually were out there looking out for each other's um, needs. A world that works probably starts with being really concerned about other human beings and the lives of other human beings, actually being able to be empathetic and feeling compassionate and wanting that for other people. In order for that to work, for us to actually be generous to one another, to maybe to care a little bit more about our neighbor's plate, does it have enough food on it? You know, obviously we have to have it a basis of our being that we're not going to starve, that I don't actually have to eat extra food today because I know there's going to be another buffet tomorrow, another plentitude of food. And I think that's the thing that we can do as a system, as a collective, and as a, as a group is we can actually start to tear apart the things that allow for us to starve that allow for human beings to live in poverty and suffering.
as long as there's terrible poverty and terrible suffering, there's always a possibility that will happen to me. And as long as there's always a possibility that will happen to me, I will fight for my, me and mine over the collective. So to have a world that works for everyone, we actually have to be committed to demonstrating that it works for everyone all the time. Absolutely. If, if one of us, just one person on this earth is suffering, we are all suffering. Eventually, there is no place on this planet to hide from each other, from climate change, from environmental things. Carl Sagan said this uh, so wonderfully. He says there's this growing consciousness that sees the earth as a single organism, an organism divided amongst itself as doomed. And, and it is so true uh, because we are at a planetary scale. We are one species and we are all on the same planet. This is our only home and we're all crew members of this spaceship Earth. There are no passengers. Nobody's here along for the ride. Nobody was dropped off from spaceship Germany or spaceship China or spaceship United States. We all crawled out of the primordial soup of this Earth. Carl Sagan also said it, you know, very, very well. He said, the basic elements of life, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, the basic elements of life were all created in, in, in the midst of collapsing stars. We are all star stuff, star dust. And, and those are not only the basic elements of our body and basic elements of life, but they're the basic elements of our earth. And we sprung up and crawled out of the primordial soup of our earth, regardless of, of your religious beliefs or beliefs. It's just um, how, how it occurred. We weren't dropped off here, some magic wand or some spaceship. Um, just real important with symbiosis that's, that's not understood. And it's, it's, we can go down to the very individual level and, uh, do we have enough on our plate? Is there someone out there suffering? Um, how do we solve for all that? Symbi symbiosis is an ecological phenomenon. It is the biggest and most innovative ecological phenomenon we've ever seen in our world before. And I want to explain that. Before I explain it, I, I want, to, want you to understand something about living systems, biology, ecology, environment, living systems. In any living system on our planet that we know of, one plus one never, ever, ever, ever equals two. It's only in math and simple accounting where one plus one equals two. But in all living systems, biological, ecological, environment, one plus one is a, what we call a super exponential. It's beyond 30x. It's beyond 300x. It is really... Um, a phenomenon that ties to symbiosis, and that is through cooperation, collaboration. Um, it is the, the biggest innovative ecological phenomenon that we've ever seen in our world. It is how pretty much everything works. In case you don't know it and you think this is the first time you hear symbiosis, I want you to know that the majority of your, your body is made up of symbionts that are helping you to stay alive. They're microorganisms, microbial cells and microbial genes 
you know, those bacteria that you're trying to kill, you're trying to kill off yourself because the majority of your body is microbial cells and microbial genes. Uh, we have more fungus and bacteria on the human body, on our skin uh, than ever before. And once we come to that realization, we call, crawled out of this planet. Uh, you know, I came out of my mother, but the first human ever, ever crawled out of this primordial soup. And so we're made up of that same basic elements of life, that composition, which is all tied to that symbiosis. Without that symbiosis, we would not be here as a species. And so the, the sooner we embrace that core element of cooperation and collaboration, the better the model goes. And, and the, the, the reason I bring it up is for all the, the business people online, all the accountants, all the economists who really want the numbers, show me the KPIs, the, the, the show me the numbers, please. <laughs> I can put any model that is extractive, capitalistic GDP head to head with a symbiotic regenerative model. I'm not in competition with them but I will outperform, outlast, be more resilient and come out smelling like a rose at the end because it's a better model. It's how life works. Not only will I be happier, I will be more profitable. I'll have abundance and things will go well. And so the more we apply those into our lives, into our business models, into our organizations, my God, there is just no other way. Um, but that is a world that works for everyone, and that's the model we need to get to, to to give it to everybody, to realize that those pig farmers and those sheep herders and the coal miners, that they can have that same abundance in a world that works for them as well, and that there is a better way to do it than um, those destructive practices we've been practicing forever. Wow. And allowing them to continue to keep their livelihoods and their dignity and their value and their contribution to the world and society. It's not an either or. And I think you think back, you're like, well, what about the, the economic models of the Middle Ages? <laughs> you know, like, why don't we use those anymore? Well, because more people starved and less, less people were fulfilled and happy. And in, in time, we're going to say, well, what, what about that kind of, you know, turn of the 20th, 21st century capitalism. Why don't we use that anymore? Those, those kind of those, those political systems. Well, because they were like the dark ages in light of the new, uh, the new models, the new ways of doing things. Can I say something to that? Because you just opened up a whole nother can of worms. In 2000 and, uh, in 2008, and then again, in 2018, NASA did a study, or no, 2014, sorry. NASA did a study because they wanted to know that exact same question that he says, okay, how many models, how many civilization models have there existed in the past? What did they do? What did they, did they thrive? Did they flourish? And, and, and so the, the core question is how many civilizations, frameworks, models were out there before, throughout history, throughout human civilization. And the, the, the study that came back, it says there's 32 civilizations all collapsed now that used to exist early antiquity mesopotamia incas aztecs greeks romans on and on early persia early china you know all of those civilizations collapsed there was 32 of them 
all but three of those 32 collapsed because of ecological or environmental collapse. And let me be more specific to tell you what that means. Because of basic needs, infrastructure, food, water, basic resources, just the basics to get by. That's why those collapsed. And the three that didn't collapse because of that was because of conflict, displacement, or disease that wiped them out. Oh, we don't. You're saying we don't want to be number number thirty five. <laughs> no, no. But all of them collapsed because they were running the exact same model. Every single one of those thirty two that collapsed, they all collapsed because they were running the same model. Can I tell you what that model is? Please. It's. I'll show it to you. It's a hierarchy model. It's with peasants, slaves, laborers, farmers, pig farmers, coal miners, construction workers. Peasants, laborers, slaves, farmers on the bottom. And one or very few at the top, king, ruler, emperor, on and on, just a few at the top. And that system is a hierarchy model dividing people up into classes, not individual. It's not inalienable human rights and basic needs for all. It's only for a few. And it's usually those civilizations or those people that are building that civilization up for others. So if you look at past histories like the the Greeks, Romans, the Egyptians, they all had peasants, slaves, and laborers that came from some other land in and were enslaved to be farmers to build up those civilizations, but did not have any buy-in to how those civilizations ran. They couldn't, after it was built up, they needed to go away, starve or die because there wasn't anything there for them because they'd fulfilled their needs or they could leave and go back to where they came from or be free of that slavery. Um, but basically they all collapsed because they were running that model and, and we're repeating that model today. And it's not symbiosis. That's, the symbiosis doesn't look like this. Symbiosis looks like cooperation, collaboration, doing things together, exactly what, what you said is a better model. And it's a better, it's an ecological phenomenon. It's the fastest innovative model that there ever is. And so a lot of people don't realize that or think about it when they're taking the selfie at the Parthenon in, in Greece that, or, or in, in Rome and looking at the ruins, they don't realize that they're actually, what, what that means and how we're repeating that same model. And so it's, it's really important to kind of get into the depth so that we can solve the solutions instead of repeating the, the past. Yeah, and obviously, you know, we've gotten better at having more people have a higher standard of living. It's it's a hierarchy. It's gotten a little broader, maybe. Well, I mean, globally, what do we still have? Three million people, three billion people living in poverty. I mean, it's, it's broad. There's a lot of people that don't, but it's nowhere near close to all of us. And then we have, you know, these these peak. Um, achievers or peak consumers, the ones running around in private jets and, and counting their money in billions. Um, and, and not that, that those people are bad people. We just have a system that magnifies and aggratizes that kind of wealth and power. And we all want it. I mean, that's kind of the crazy thing. We all want to be that, that person. Although if you've ever met anybody, and I don't know any billionaires personally, but plenty of, you know, tens of millionaires type people, they don't seem very happy. 
they don't seem to be like they're all like like they've got ten million dollars. Are they a hundred more times happier than I am? No, they're not even as happy as I am. It has nothing to do with their satisfaction and happiness in life. And many of them, um, you know, Boston College is a study of people had had big wealth. So they needed seventy five million and above uh, to be in the study. And ninety percent of the people that had that kind of money, you know, hundred million dollar plus, felt that they were still in, uh, insecure financially. Even the hundred million dollars in the bank, they still didn't feel safe, secure financially. So if you think about that, that's like that's the problem right there. If every single human being felt secure financially, which really means that I can feed myself, I can feed and my my kids and my family, I can get good health care, I have work that has dignity to it. Um, I can eat, I eat good food. I've, I, you know, I have, I have a clean environment to, to, to be in. If we can solve for those very, very base level needs globally, 100%, then there's a lot of room for people to play around. And I want to, you know, do this thing or that thing, or maybe build a business. There's, there's room for that. I think if that, that's what human expression want needs, but that, that hierarchical economic system is responsible for the basic existence of humanity is flat wrong. It could be a hobby to be rich, but it cannot be part of the fabric of our everyday economics or there is going to be people starving in the streets because we've decided that the way to run things is to let some people be really rich and to let some people be die. And I, by saying we, I mean the collective, not you, listener, or you, Mark. But in, 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 in specific, we have got to take actions to remove these operating systems from the way we run Earth. Thank you for that input, Mark. I want one last thing from you, and you might even have something to say back to me, but wherever you go, I want you to leave our, our, our listeners today, our viewers who are watching this in video, with some concrete things they can do. And we've talked about some really big things. We've talked about some really big systemic changes, but I don't want people to walk away with some ideas. Give them some things that they can get in action in their life today. After they finish this podcast, they can go into their world and, and, and make some change and some difference for themselves. Well, there, there is no easy solution or silver bullet, but I would love to do that, and I appreciate the, the opportunity. I just want to give it um, from, from my personal aspect. So some people might have read a book that I've written, or they might see me talk on, on the podcast, or, or see me on the stage where I give a talk, or be at one of my trainings that I do. <clears throat> it's really easy to kind of make assumptions or, or to assume uh, what it is, what I do, and what it looks like. And, and honestly, I've gotten a lot of feedback over the years. I've been doing this a long time, for almost 32 years now, and uh, gotten some feedback over the years because of, of the way I look, hair, beard, whatever, which has been longer or shorter at times, um, and maybe the way I talk is a little bit slow or something that people tend to think that, you know, I'm a pot smoking hippie or a tree hugger or that I meditate all the time. You would not believe how many people make the assumptions of how I eat, what I eat, uh, how I live my lifestyle, what my what my views are based off of what I talk about sometimes online. Um, but I, I want you to know that. Each and what, every one of us, every one of us who's listening to this is made up of depth and substance and is a crew member of Spaceship Earth. And there's a lot more than um, that what we do and um, 
as as a job or as a profession that makes up who we are and we shouldn't define ourselves by that by no means and also have those biases that judge and make assumptions of who we are who we work for and what lies in in our hearts and that soul the reason i bring that up is because i obviously i talk a lot about um, sustainability environment our planet I, I would like to see a better future i do a lot with futurism but they're the best tools that i can offer anyone and they're not just for those in the environmental or sustainability space they're for everyone just as a better operating manual for yourself as a human being and they're called the three pillars of sustainability is what i've I've token them as. The first pillar is economics. You absolutely have to know economic models inside and out. You don't have to be an economist. You don't have to teach anybody about it, but you have to know the, just the basics of what exists and what there are, because whether you want to or not, whether you're poor or not, there's an economic model that's influencing your life every single day. So that means you, you should probably be well-versed at the economic models to avoid and not to take in if you have a chance, like classical and neoclassical, macro capitalism, microeconomics, uh, GDP, uh, extractive economics, whatever the, that bad economic model is, avoid it like the plague, try not to participate in it. The, the more you participate in it, the more you keep it in, in its life. The more you say, oh, that's fine with me. I like capitalism. I like extractive economics. The more you keep that bad economic system in, in life. But not, as, as an environmentalist, as, a, a, as somebody in sustainability or who's concerned about the future, um, it's good not to just bitch and moan about the bad economic models. It's good to know what are the ones that can replace it. Instead of complaining, let's create a new model that makes the old one obsolete. So we hear a lot about circular economy, donut economics. Be well versed in what kind of economic model you would like to see for you in your life that if you are a pig farmer, if you are a coal miner, what economic model would you like to live in? to provide for you and your family that would make you happy and to live the life that you, your soul intended, the life that you desired. And find that ecological economic model is my hope. And, and either live it or join or talk about it. Um, and if you, you can't, you're stuck in another model, then make sure that you don't vote for anybody that is running some kind of other economic model or supporting that. Make sure that you let your voice heard for your city, your government, your councils, your, your, your financial authorities to say, I don't support that. I don't agree with that. I, I would like to see something else. So make sure that your money isn't put into those things to keep those bad systems alive. That's one. So economics is the first pillar. I think it's a vital part to know what can replace it. Uh, and, and, and to be able to speak about it a, a little bit within your own family or life so that if you go to your boss, if you go to someone, that you can, you can say, hey, but I don't want to support that. That doesn't come out for my benefit. The second pillar is innovations. And it's not just simple innovations. It's impact innovations for purpose. 
that solve human suffering and our global grand challenges. The reason it's impact innovations for purpose is the second pillar is because humanity has needed to make six major transformations well before the sustainable development goals, well before the millennium development goals. We've needed to make six major transformations in order to get out of the Anthropocene and go into the Symbiocene, what I like to call the Symbiocene, or James Lovelock calls it the Novocene, and some call it the Sustainocene. We're currently trapped in the, the age of man-made climate change, which is the Anthropocene, but whenever humanity has went from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age to the Industrial Age to whatever age or epoch we go to, we've needed an innovation to get us there. And those innovations that help transform humanity from one epoch to the next are impact innovations for purpose. The only time we talk about transformations, and we've I, I've been I deal a lot with businesses and innovations and technologies, is for the last ten years or more, I've heard this this talk about one of the six major transformations, and it's the digital revolution, the digital transformation. That's the one you hear everywhere, and now now we're hearing you know metaverse and blockchain and Web three and. AI and all these emerging technologies, but I want you to know there's five other major transformations humanity needs to go through to get out of this epoch, to, to see us transition to another age, and they've been around for a long time. Um, and the only way to get there is through impact innovations for purpose to solve human suffering and our global grand challenges. Just to address the digital revolution, I want you to know we haven't made it, even though we're having this podcast online and and virtual and, and whatever. Um, during the pandemic, broadband is not a human right for all. It hasn't solved our financial problems, our governance problems. Um, not everybody has access to it. It's not the silver bullet. It has a long way to go, or it shouldn't have a long way to go. It could probably be easily fixed, but not everybody has access to computers, broadband, and the basic rights of the digital revolution or the transition. So that's, that's why mainly the number two is impact innovations for purpose because that's how it transforms us to a new age, to a world that works for everyone. And the last one is basically futurism, but I call it regenerative futurism. It's all about the future. Um, before the past or the history came the future and it's paved the way to everything that we've seen and talk about in the past. Uh, and um, it just hasn't been led or guided or planned out with a clear purpose of where we want to go as humanity because we haven't been collective and, and, and sometimes those, those methodologies and ways that we decide to frame our civilizations has gone awry through corruption, greed or whatever. So the last pillar is really the one I, I want to leave with you for, for almost everything. Um, it's about the future, and it's, it, it really starts with a question. And the question is, what does a world that works for everyone look like for you? And the reason that question is so important, because if you've never asked yourself that question, and if you don't know what the answer is, guess what? Someone else in our world, a city, a government, a politician, a religion, has jumped into that place and because you don't know, they're guiding your future. They're setting the plans 
on where the boat, the spaceship, or the city, or the community you live in is going. They're guiding that future. The minute you know what it looks like for you, and you realize those around you, where you're at, are, are taking you in a different direction than you would like to go, you can make your voice heard. The, the second and most important part of that is, once you have a vision, you can figure out the how to get there as fast as possible, to be on that journey and live the life your soul intended you to live. And it's a fabulous tool. I use foresight and futurism tools every single day in my sustainability and environmental work. It's all about everything. Everything that I do and speak about is trying to get everybody uh, in humanity that is taken care of and, and for a long time for multiple generations. Great. So we need to pay attention to economic models. So after this podcast, if you haven't read Donut Economics or know anything about it or don't know anything about just economics in general, go watch a YouTube video. I'm sure plenty of resources out there just to start to figure out that, hey, the way money works is because there's a system and the system was built by human beings. They designed it a long time ago, maybe, but it doesn't mean it can't be redesigned or rebuilt to Innovate. I mean, look, you, everybody's an innovator. Everybody's a creator to these days. There's some problem, small, large, otherwise that you can go out and tackle and figure out how to do something about it. There's one that's important to you that you, has your name written on it for something for you to look at and do. Um, and then three, I love this thing is it start to think like a futurist. What is the desirable future that you want? You know, like what would it work, look like for you to have a world that works? What would your life work like? What would your relationships look like? What would your uh, job look like? What would your business look like? And if it looks radically different, that's okay. And if it's a long, long journey to get there, that's okay too. It gets you oriented into taking the right kinds of actions. Mark Buckley, what a pleasure it has been to have this conversation with you. I'm sure we could go for another hour and a half. All we have to do is just open up the uh, the book of of, uh, of different conversations, and we will do that. We will continue to have these conversations either on Mark's podcast or on our show here. Um, but thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your work ongoingly. And uh, most of all, thank you for your friendship and partnership and developing a world that works or at least being daring enough and willing to, uh, you know, put yourself on the line to say, hey, this is the direction that I think a desirable future lies within. So until next time, Mark, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Uh, I look forward to having you again. Michael, Sean, I am so excited to have you as my friend. I cannot tell you what a, bl a blessing it is for me to know you and to be able to work with you on all that we work on together. I couldn't do this journey without you. I, I want you to realize, I'm, I mean that in all seriousness, to have your wisdom, to have the training that you've had and your insight over the years and, and Buddhism and, and how the world works, seeing it from a different perspective. And not only are you a wonderful director for me, but you bring in that view and that lens of someone who is a director who knows visually how how things should look. But that that's part of the vision of a, a of a futurist, which you are, that has just fulfilled my life. And to to come, uh, you know, we're working on the, the future series. We're working on um, the world that works for everyone and and, and other things as well. But they're all tied to symbiosis. They're all tied to alignment that we have and, and how we would see a better future. And 
it's it's really a rarity to find that in, in abundance. I go to these climate conference, the UN. And I tell you, I feel like a stranger sometimes there because there's not that many people that have that broad vision uh, like our Buck Minister Fuller. When I'm with you, I feel like I'm uh, with my best friend, our Buck Minister Fuller, except you're a lot better because you're here now in your life. So I really just want to thank you again for for this time, for all our conversations, because it's hard and it it, it is different. We, we probably talk more business things or things that we need to get done than to actually spend the time uh, that we do about all the other things that we need to know and align on each other. And it, it's a, been a sheer blessing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. And likewise, you know, the, and those of you that are listening out there, understand that this kind of symbiocene starts with you finding your symbiotic uh, partners to, to, go in the same direction with, especially if you're a forerunner, if you're somebody who's an innovator, um, there's not going to be a lot of, of social um, um, uh, proof that you're doing the right thing. Not a lot of people are going to come around and go, oh, great, you're innovating here. You're going to need a couple of people that will stand by and say, yes, that's the direction to go in. Uh, Mark, you are certainly one of those people for me. I'm happy to walk along uh, with you along this path to a better future. Um, and for all of our listeners, may you have a great day today, but may you have a better tomorrow because that is something you can get your hands on and do something about. Uh, so I'm Michael Sean Conaway, the Generative Futurist. Until we speak next time, thank you and goodbye. The Boldly Now Show, igniting the world of burning desire, big ideas, and bold action. Be sure to download Boldly You in the App Store, Google Play, or online at bold.ly forward slash Y-O-U. Boldly You is an app and learning platform igniting your burning desire, big ideas, and bold action, generating a future for a thriving humanity. Boldly Now is an initiative of the Generative Futures Initiative, generating a thriving future for humanity. Learn more at generativefuturesinitiative.com.